Welcome to Commercializing Living Therapies with CCRM. In this podcast, we'll be engaging with cell and gene therapy industry experts and influencers and sharing insider insights, information, and trends. CCRM is a leader in developing and commercializing regenerative medicine-based technologies and cell and gene therapies. I'm your host, Krista Lamb, and on today's episode, we'll be discussing some of the issues around access to regenerative medicine therapies by patients. Our guests today are Tom Whitehead, an author and keynote speaker and the co-founder of the Emily Whitehead Foundation, and Dr. Courtney Horvath, who is the Global Head of Strategy, Planning, and Operations in Translational Medicine at Novartis. Dr. Horvath is also a childhood cancer advocate and a TEDx speaker. Welcome to the show. It is so fantastic to have both of you here. Thank you. Thank you. So first of all, why don't we introduce yourselves and let the audience know a little bit about who you are and what you do. Courtney, would you like to go first? Sure. My name's Courtney Horvath. Um, I'm from just outside of Boston. I'm a toxicologist by training. So I have my PhD in toxicology and a board certification in toxicology. And I've been working in the drug development industry for over a decade, um, mostly working in the space of ensuring the safety of new therapeutics. Um, I always say, though, that perhaps my most important job is as a mom to two amazing children, one of whom is a recent cancer survivor. Amazing. And Tom, would you like to introduce yourself? I'm Tom Whitehead, and I'm the president and uh, co-founder of the Emily Whitehead Foundation, and most importantly, Emily's dad. That's so amazing. And I am going to ask you a little bit about all of that, because you've both publicly shared your stories about your experience with childhood cancer and going through this as a family. And so we'd really like to know a little bit about why it's so important for people to share their stories and their experiences publicly. Tom, did you want to go first? Yeah. So, you know, when, when my Emily was diagnosed just after the age of five, you know, we were told it was the most curable type of pediatric cancer being acute lymphoblastic leukemia. You know, they called it the garden variety kind of cancer. And um, they told us 90% chance uh, that she would um, be cured uh, after 26 months of chemotherapy. And, you know, we got started and had a rough start, but she did get in remission. Um, and then 16 months in, she relapsed. Um, we tried to get to bone marrow transplant and, and never made it. Um, we did get her into remission to try to do that. And then she relapsed again, and we were going to be sent home on hospice. And at that point, um, we transferred from our local hospital to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, where the CAR T-cell trial had opened the day before, and Emily became uh, the first child in the world uh, with her immune system trained to beat her cancer. And that kicked off this cancer immunotherapy revolution. And, um, you know, she kind of became the face of it. And with all of the media attention behind that, came calls uh, from families from all over the world that were looking for hope. And, uh, and we just decided that, you know, we pretty much received a miracle and that we were going to spend the rest of our lives paying it forward and trying to help other families have the same outcome as us and make more patients and, and the general public aware of these new, less toxic uh, ways to um, fight cancer. That's so amazing. And Courtney, why was it important to you to share your story? I just have to start by saying I'm honored to be here with Tom because Emily's story has actually been a big inspiration in us wanting to share um, our journey. 
so in fact, our journey started a little bit similar. Um, Colby was diagnosed at eight years old, um, and we got the exact same message um, as as Tom's family. Um, Colby had a low risk lymphoma with a messaging around a 90 plus percent chance of a cure, um, which is amazing. Um, in the time frame, almost 10 years out from Emily Whitehead being treated with CAR-T successfully and lots more experience there, and being someone in the field who knew and followed this story, it was pretty shocking when the follow-on comment was, and your son will have two and a half years of some of the most intensive chemo um, to be able to survive that. And for me, that was sort of an unacceptable moment um, in the first five minutes of us even finding this out, um, especially being in, in drug safety, to say that we were going to pump him with an incredible amount of toxic drugs for the next two and a half years was something that was very difficult for me to accept. And it instilled this huge sense of passion. Um, a lot of my efforts have really been focused in helping to educate folks in the pharmaceutical community about what standard of care really means for kids. We celebrate the fact that a large number of these kids are getting cured. Um, but it is at a very significant cost. And how can we think about moving some of these more innovative therapies to the front line has become a big passion for us to kind of share and at least plant the seed so that people start to maybe consider this moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that the other thing that's really, really happening in the around the world is that there's a lack of access even to these therapies for some of the families that need them. So there's so many things that have to be considered. And and Tom, I'd love to know a little bit about what you think in terms of access and how we might be able to improve that. Yeah, and I would start off by saying, you know, in the beginning, all of the children um, that needed Emily's treatment had to come to Philadelphia. Um, and, and that spread out, you know, pretty quickly. Um, as a matter of fact, probably faster than ever in the past, um, when Novartis got involved and helped get Emily's treatment, uh, you know, global. Um, but there has been many improvements. I think there's been over 15,000 patients total in maybe 82 countries in the last 10 years. But they're still saying that maybe 2% of the patients that would qualify for these new treatments are actually getting them. So to me, you know, um, I think, you know, we've tried to be part of being in the media in these other countries, which puts pressure on their healthcare advocates that decide whether or not they're going to pay for these treatments and showing them how healthy Emily looks. Um, that's helped gain some access. But, you know, to, to really get more access, I think the innovations that are coming where they can put the cells in this machine here and they come out the other side ready to go. Um, I, I know, you know, when Emily got her treatment, they took them six weeks to grow her cells. And now they have what they call Prodigy at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, where they can actually have them ready in like 10 days, I believe is what they're doing now, eight to 10 days. Um, so making it quicker to get there and then more affordable too with these new innovations that are coming. Um, it also will lower the cost and, and get it out into uh, I would say the more rural hospitals where, where hopefully these things can be done um, in a more effective way, um, because we've seen that a lot of patients can't travel and get to wherever, even if it is available in four or five hospitals, say in your state, 
um, some some kids can't even travel across the city to get to treatment. So um, we're trying to just be a part of improving that. So as the innovations come, more of these patients actually get connected to them. And I think, like I said, with the innovations coming, bringing the cost down will also definitely make this uh, more globally accessible. Yeah, I would love your thoughts on accessibility as well, Courtney, because I think that this is something many of the people listening will have thoughts on. Yeah, I I guess I actually, with Colby's experience, come at it from a slightly different angle and think about the accessibility to the broader patient population, which is maybe something that a lot of people aren't thinking about right now. And this comes from, you know, in those first moments of Colby's diagnosis, um, we were told he had a low-risk B-cell lymphoma. In theory, it's actually a great candidate probably for something like a CAR-T, and that was one of my first questions to the oncologist and her feedback was that um, he would not be eligible for that unless he failed frontline treatment. Um, And I think it's just important for people to understand what frontline treatment looks like. It's pretty horrific um, in terms of what these kids are being put through. And, And the patients that are getting the access are the ones like in Emily's case with the most aggressive um, cancers and there's not currently really a dialogue at least that I'm aware of in that pediatric oncology space to sort of say are there other patients that maybe could um, benefit from access um, to these types of treatments which is a slightly different angle but I think still worthy of a discussion in the community now. Yeah I would I would say too um, from my daughter's perspective now uh, her goal is to get it to frontline treatment so kids don't have to go through all of that chemotherapy. And Dr. Stephen Grupp at CHOP there in Philadelphia actually is working on a trial right now. Um, I don't believe they've started patients yet, but I think they're getting ready to, to use it upfront at diagnosis with B-cell ALL because of the uh, amazing success that they've had with the treatment. And I tell people all the time that Emily, if Emily would have went to a bone marrow transplant, um, there's no way she would be 10 years since she spent a night in the hospital. So going, I was much more afraid of going in to get full body radiation for Emily for the bone marrow transplant than I ever was of giving her the CAR T cells. And again, it doesn't happen for everybody, but this May 10th with Emily will be 11 years since she spent a night in the hospital. It's truly, truly amazing. I wanted to circle back, Courtney, you had mentioned something about the process that your son went through. And I know that you have this incredible TED Talk that you released, which is called Surviving the Cure. And it was really powerful for me to watch that and just to realize what we are asking of pediatric cancer patients in terms of what they go through. And I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about, A, what inspired you to make that? And two, what you hope to see change? Yeah, Thanks. Um, It's actually an interesting question because it sort of spurred in a very um, organic way. We started sharing Colby's journey um, internally where I work with a bunch of the world's leading scientists. And um, 
it resonated in ways that I couldn't have even imagined. For me, it became just this passion of helping to educate people because I personally was so shocked that I didn't even have an understanding of what these kids were really enduring. For Colby, as an example, 800 days of treatment and most of these kids end up with lifelong issues from that treatment. Um, and after we, sh after I, I shared that, and Colby actually came along with me. He's well spoken, and he's also in the TED Talk. And he shared his his own journey. And he asked everyone. He said, "This is my ask of you: is to make safer treatments that actually work for kids with cancer." And out of that spurred this entire support network around us that really um, helped encourage us to push that out to the broader public, which is how the TEDx talk came into play. Um, you know, I think it's been it's been an interesting journey. I think we've had a lot of um, amazing success with educating more people, but it also we fully recognize it's really hard for people to listen to. It's hard to see the realities of what these kids go through. And a lot of people, and I got a lot of this feedback, they get into the first, you know, 30 seconds of the talk and they, they sometimes have to turn it off because it's easier to just tune it out and pretend like you don't know. And that's really why we gave such a raw and honest view mm -hmm. because it, it just feels so incredibly important to us that people do learn what the reality is about and not to kind of sugarcoat it. It's not just about kind of bald kids smiling in the hospital that people tend to see on TV. It's it's really, really challenging space. And, you know, my take on that is that we have the ability now to be doing so much better. It's just, you know, nobody's really putting the pieces together to move the ball forward. It's so fascinating that both of you have used these sort of visual mediums to share your stories in different ways. Tom, you and your family did Of Medicine and Miracles, which tells Emily's story. And I think it did a lot to help people understand that there are new possibilities and new treatments. Have you seen that the documentary has really had a way of helping? Yeah, absolutely. And and hopefully we're going to have it out on a streaming service soon. But um We've done very well in a lot of film festivals and I've had a lot of people, you know, that went and saw it, that connected me with someone they know who had a child with cancer who ends up in CAR T cells, you know, or a trial somewhere, at least to give them hope. Um, and that's always been our goal is to make people more aware, to also educate oncologists who in the beginning were pushing back against these new treatments because they're just trained to do the standard chemotherapy. Um, but again, I, I would like to echo on the fact that what you have to give your child during those times is just brutal. And, you know, we had uh, a dose of chemotherapy when they had to grow Emily's, you know, CAR T cells that needed to buy us time. And they actually told us afterward that the dose they gave her would take the life of an adult. Um, and just, you know, I had one night when I had to sign a consent that they might amputate both of Emily's legs. Uh, luckily they saved them. Um, but, and the other thing I learned, too, going through it is when people say they're in remission, it sounds to you like they're fine. And there's that there couldn't be anything farther from the truth that they're just getting into a marathon of a battle, uh, going through a lot of pain and suffering uh, when they do get in remission. Yeah, I think that's very, very true. And I wanted to follow up, too, because you had mentioned that this is 11 years since Emily's treatment. That's a huge milestone in showing the efficacy of these treatments. 
what do you think that brings to the table in terms of how we can move this forward is showing this as an example. Yeah, and I think what people have told us is like she's writing the history books as she gets further and further out. And finally, you know, after she was 10 years cancer free, they were able to say it's not just a cure for her, but it is a cure because they had so many children past five years. You know, when she got to five years, they said, you're probably cured, but we can't really call it a cure until you get further out. So as she gets further out, and we've been very fortunate that she doesn't have a lot of the complications that other children that have gone through the treatment have, um, because if you see her today, you can't tell anything ever happened to her. She's a normal, you know, 17-year-old, almost 18, applying to college. Um, but I think that is the biggest thing that it showed. Um, it showed that you can get a long-term remission. Those CAR T cells are still in her. And it also showed the world that you can start in pediatrics and figure out with research there what can also work in adults. Yeah, and Courtney, I would also love to hear your thoughts, having gone through these treatments and these therapies and now looking at it from, you know, a different side. Do you think that this is is showing that we need to really focus on these therapies? Yes, 100%. I, you know, I look at what Colby went through and it gets I have to admit it gets easier as the days go on just this week we went in for Colby's um, 10 month post ending chemo treatment and you know he's still going in monthly he's still getting his counts checked he's still getting his heart checked for potential issues that he'll have long term with his heart he still has issues with his legs and he is going to have these issues probably for the rest of his life and he's going to need intensive monitoring um I I laugh a little bit. I, I drive my teenage daughter crazy because I, I can't help myself from engaging in these conversations. But I want to give you an example. We were at the dentist recently and um, the the dentist was explaining to the gentleman who owns the, the practice who's who's much much older um, about Colby's situation. He has, in fact, with his teeth, lots of cavities and things from the chemo. And and she said, you know, this young man, he just finished treatment. And and the older gentleman looked and he said, isn't it amazing how far we've come in treating, you know, childhood leukemias? And I was like, actually, hold on a second. There are a lot of amazing examples, but what Colby was treated with was probably the exact same thing that you're referencing from the 1960s, just slight tweaks and modifications along the way to optimize an incredibly toxic protocol. And the vast majority of kids in the leukemia and and subsets of lymphoma space are still getting that treatment. And when you say that the vast majority of drugs that Colby received were developed and approved for use before man even walked on the moon, it's a pretty shocking statement for people to hear. And, you know, to say they work, okay, yes, they work. Colby is, you know, in remission and has been now for some time, but it's at a really significant cost. And I think, you know, that's the piece that gets missing. We celebrate the amazing successes as they come, um, but then we just need to keep moving the field to make sure that as many patients as possible have access to that. 
Absolutely. I, I wonder too, does your being a toxicologist, do you think you bring a different perspective to this? Because I find that the way you speak about it is so powerful, but I think that maybe you have a, a way of speaking to people on the other side of the table that aren't parents that maybe they can hear a little more. I like to hope so. I always joke that I am my son's oncologist's worst nightmare because I understand the drugs. I know what they do and I'm constantly questioning why. Um, you know, I, I, I always say to her, what you're doing defies every basic principle of pharmacology and toxicology. You're giving a drug for a certain impact, what we call efficacy. And at some point, you maybe push past that threshold into toxicology, um, which means really bad side effects. And what happens with these protocols, and I think Tom spoke to this as well, is you're typically just following um, you know, a set of, of measures that need to be taken and you push the needle too far, the kids get super, super sick very, very quickly to the point where I think Tom mentioned as well that there were times where Colby was barely conscious in the hospital with a 106 degree temperature that you would say, enough's enough. Um, when do you stop? And the dosing keeps going <laughs> a lot of the times because nobody really understands at what point on these protocols you can miss, you can hold enough of the drug where you start to lose the benefits of the efficacy and the chance for these kids to ultimately be cured. Um, there's still so much understanding that has to take place there. So yes, I'm constantly being that person because I feel like if it's not me, with the background that I have in safety, then who who is it going to be? If you don't understand and you haven't lived this, I genuinely feel um, you're not in a position to be able to really question it because living it is 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 unimaginable. I, I really, in my wildest dreams, would never have thought that we could live through a situation like that and that would be our reality of how sick he got from so many of these drugs. Um, it's, yeah. It, it's hard to keep my mouth quiet. <laughs> oh, and I, I think we're really lucky that we have people like yourself and Tom who are who are making these statements and, and making this known. And and Tom, that's a good transition for me to ask you about the Emily Whitehead Foundation and all of the things that you're doing, the Believe Ball, and you have this Ambassador Award. And I would love it if you could tell me a little bit about why you decided to do that and what it is that you're doing. Yeah, so... With our foundation, um, you know, in the beginning, um, we just wanted to help other families have somebody to talk to. Um, you know, when Emily went through it, we, we didn't have anybody to ask questions to. Even the doctors would say, we don't know what's going to happen. Um, but we wanted to just help advocate for patients to know about these and get them. And that led us to starting the Emily Whitehead Foundation. And, and the other thing that really led us to starting it was people that had big foundations for cancer research or whatever, were using her story and not donating it towards pediatric immunotherapy. And that seemed unacceptable to us at the time. So we just decided, you know, to name it after her because she had that kind of recognition and just do whatever we could, you know, to make a difference and get these less toxic treatments to more children. Um, and, and, you know, right now we started a private Facebook page with just the parents of these patients on or an actual patient themselves if they're a little bit older. And we have, I, I think we're in the range of 500 families on there now um, from over 50 countries, um, but just, just trying to pay it forward. Um, and then the ambassador award came from 
Um, you know, we say we're Emily's ambassador, so we spell with an E. So it's an ambassador award. And that was, you know, started out just to honor uh, these doctors and researchers and, and young researchers were even given some grants out uh, in the ambassador name um, to, to keep this, you know, keep the focus on new, less toxic treatments that weren't made back in the 60s that uh, will have less lifelong side effects. So these patients can actually thrive after, uh, after they're done with treatment and not just survive, you know. So um, besides that, and um, we, we met, uh, I met one young lady named Nicole Gallardi, and uh, she became like family to us. And we helped her survive five more years of, I think she ended up with 10 relapses total. She went through three CAR-T different trials, uh, Penn, um, and passed in her late thirties during COVID, but she became like family to us. So we also wanted to, um, you know, give out an award in her honor as well, um, just because of how hard she fought and she got, actually got started in, into immunotherapy by hearing about Emily's story to get started. And then she, like I said, became like family to us and moved from San Francisco to Philadelphia area and came to our house for a couple of Christmases and, um, uh, just these these patients have really changed our lives and, uh, for the better, and um, we we want to help as many as we can, and then honor the ones that uh, that didn't survive. That is just incredible, and it's really important. And we're so lucky that you were doing this. So we're almost out of time, and I wanted to wrap up the conversation with a little bit of hope. So I will start with you, Courtney, and ask you what is your hope in terms of regenerative medicine and its use in pediatric cancers moving forward. Um, oh, it's a great question. I have so many hopes. <laughs> but um, I guess if I had to sum it up, I, I just hope that we can, um, by people like Tom, like myself, and there's so many other voices, especially of parents, can keep helping to educate um, people and inform folks around um, the opportunities that exist and that the industry, the research, um, scientists, everyone can really come together and try to find solutions to increase the access so that we can really start to move the needle forward and, you know, transform the lives of these, these kids and their families. That's a pretty great goal. Tom, I'll give you the last word. What is your hope for the future with these regenerative medicine therapies? Yep. So I hope uh, a medicine with the success rate that like Emily pioneered becomes frontline uh, treatment for the kids as soon as they're diagnosed. I truly believe that'll make B-cell ALL an outpatient treatment in the future. Um, I hope we have some breakthroughs in the solid tumors with these new immunotherapy treatments that could, you know, just save so many more thousands of lives in adults and children. And then I also hope that the off the shelf T-cells that are donated by somebody else can start working. Uh, you know, we know patients that have not been able to grow their own T-cells or for whatever reason need them, need them before their own can be grown. And uh, when they start working, again, I just think it'll just lead to many more families having the same outcome as we have had. And that's our goal every day. So I will thank you both for joining me today. It was really wonderful to talk to you. Thank, thank you. you very much. It was an honor to be on. I'm Krista Lamb, and you've been listening to Commercializing Living Therapies with CCRM. If you liked today's show, please be sure to share it with others. You can find more episodes at ccrm.ca backslash podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. If you have a question or comment about the show, email us at podcast at ccrm.ca 
or reach out to us on social media at CCRM underscore CA. Our hashtag for social media sharing is CCRM podcast. Thanks for listening. Thank you.